The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming from the sea different from one another. And so there are four beasts coming out of the ocean, coming out of the sea. In verse four, it describes the first beast. It was like a lion, it had wings of an eagle. So they kept looking until its wings were plucked off and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, a human mind was given to it. The second beast in verse five is a bear. It was raised up on one side, three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and it was saying, arise, devour much meat. And then the third beast is described in verse six. He says, I kept looking and behold another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Then verse seven, I kept looking in the fourth night and the night visions and there was a fourth beast. So you've had three beasts so far. You've had a lion, a bear and a leopard. And now he says, this beast was dreadful and terrifying. It was extremely strong and had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that before, before it, it had 10 horns. And while I was contemplating these horns, another horn, a little one came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, the horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boast. Daniel goes to sleep. He has a vision. He has a dream. Daniel's disturbing dream. We'll find out exactly what it means in a couple of moments. Father, teach us now. Thank you for our time of worship with our college students leading us, and thank you for the word of God. Thank you for this body. Father, thank you for the folks that you bring here. Thank you for the churches in our community. Father, thank you for churches that name the name of Jesus. And now as we turn our attention to Daniel, Father, I pray that you would teach us, give us humble hearts to listen, and then to obey truth in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the greatest evidences for the Bible being the inspired and errant word of God is a fulfillment of biblical prophecies. Prophecies that were spoken in time past and eventually came to fruition. Because as you know, it's very difficult to prophesy or predict things in the future. I mean, it's difficult. In fact, if you look at these, these are some things that were predicted and you see how humorous it is uh, by recognizing how difficult it is to predict the future. Uh, groups are out, four-piece groups with guitars particularly are finished. This was spoken by DECA executive in 1962 when they rejected the Beatles in a contract. They said, we're done with these kind of people, it'll never happen. I would say that was a pretty bad prediction, wouldn't you? I mean, that was pretty bad. Uh, I think there is a world market for about five computers. How many of you, if you count iPhone, iPad, reader, or desktop or laptop, have at least five computers in your home? I mean, that's amazing. You know who said this? The founder and chairman of the board of IBM, Thomas Watson. I mean, he's one of the most brilliant technology minds back when IBM started in the 1930s. Uh, we don't need you. You haven't finished college yet. That's why Hewlett Packard rejected Stephen Jobs from getting a job with them. You haven't finished college yet. And the rest, as they say, is history, right? It's difficult to make predictions. Uh, Law will be simplified, lawyers will have diminished, and their fees will have been vastly curtailed. That's happened. (laughs) 
That was spoken in 1893 by Junius Brown, a journalist. And as we know, the exact opposite has taken place. Law has not gotten simple. Lawyers have not diminished and uh, their fees have not been curtailed. Uh, Here's a good one, the last one. There's no chance that the iPhone is gonna have any significant market share. (laughs) In December of last year, the one billionth iPhone was sold. One billion iPhones. That's why Apple stock is through the roof, I'm sure. Who spoke that? Pretty interesting, Steve Ballmer, CEO of Microsoft, when the uh, first Apple phone, first iPhone came out in 2007. Pretty interesting, iPhone's only been out that short a time. One billion sold. It's hard to predict the future. It's hard to predict the future. But the word of God does it over and over and over again. You're gonna see in the remainder of Daniel's book that there are these prophetic things that were spoken in the past that have come to fruition and some more that have yet to come to fruition. And we're gonna see as we study the book of Daniel that uh, in this section, it's gonna be unlike the first half of the book. In the first six chapters, it's been biographical in nature. In the first six chapters, we've got Daniel being exiled in Babylon, not eating the king's food. We've got the whole fiery furnace episode, the lion's den episode, the handwriting on the wall, the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Over and over again, it's been a biographical section about Daniel and his friends and about the great God that we have. But now the book shifts. Daniel 7 to the rest of the book is prophetic in nature, apocalyptic, if you will. To talk about the future. Some of it was future to Daniel. It has since been fulfilled. Some of it is still future to us, even though Daniel spoke it many centuries ago. And I pray two things will come out of the rest of our study of Daniel. First of all, we'll walk out saying what a great God we have. I pray that as we look at all of these prophetic sections, that you will walk through this section of God's word and you'll walk away seeing God in a great big way. You'll recognize how great he is, how majestic he is, and how he can bring his word to fruition and fulfillment. Secondly, I pray that you'll have much hope. We live in a world filled with chaos. We live in a world where nations war against war, where where there are all these terrorist groups that want to maim and kill. We, We live in a world where there's total chaos. And I pray that when you look at the end of the book, and we'll look at some of that today in Daniel 7, but when we go through the whole thing and look at the prophetic scheme of events, you'll recognize there's great hope for us. Prophecy was given so that we might have hope. So we're going to look at all those particulars in a few moments. When God speaks prophetically... He says, this is what I will do, and this is what has been done. And when we see that happening, we see it unfolding, we recognize what a great God that we do have. Well, Daniel dreams. He's given this vision. And it's a very troubling vision. I know it's troubling because of verse 15. Look at verse 15 in chapter 7. He says, as for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. He said, man, I am in turmoil. I am troubled. I'm in turmoil. I'm distressed, I'm depressed, I can't sleep. What I see is confusing and what I see is disheartening. What I see is a challenge to me. Then in verse 28, at this point, the revelation ended as for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So Daniel's disturbing dream is, is really a nightmare. He is distressed, he's disturbed, he's troubled, he's in turmoil. The word distress in verse 15 in the Hebrew language means to be agitated. It's like the agitated in your washer, Daniel's gone round and round and round on the inside. He has great trouble. It's a nightmare. You ever have a nightmare like that? I mean, this recurring dream perhaps, or a dream that just keeps you awake at night? 
Yeah, after I was done with all my schooling, and somebody would say I was done way before I finished my education, but uh, when I was done with all my schooling, I had this recurring nightmare. The recurring nightmare was I signed up for a class. I forgot that I signed up for that class to the very end of that semester. And then I realized I'd signed up for this class. I'd not gone a single time. That's not a nightmare for you guys. Some of you, it's true. You signed up for that class. You need to get there. You ever have that dream? Anybody ever have that dream? They signed up for class. I mean, none of you guys over there, you haven't finished yet. That's why. It'll come. I mean, it's a recur- it was for years, it was a recurring nightmare to me. I'd wake up in a cold sweat. I mean, Daniel has a dream. It's almost reading like science fiction, but the reality of it's a dream given to him by God. It's a dream that when you understand what it means and when it unfolds before you, you see the greatness of God and you see the future from where we are. So Daniel has this dream. It's causing him trouble. It's causing him turmoil. It's causing him distress. And it's causing him all kinds of struggles. So in verses 2 and 3, it says that these four beasts rise out of the ocean, rise out of the sea. In the ancient Near East, the sea was symbolic of chaos and turmoil. Chaos and turmoil. And that's what Daniel's in, chaos and turmoil. So these four beasts are going to be trouble. What was his dream and what was his vision? Well, just a reminder, up until now, Daniel has been interpreting dreams, but now Daniel needs his dream interpreted for him. In fact, if you look at verse 16, he says, I approached one of those who was standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. In the previous dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and the handwriting on the wall of Belshazzar, what we see is that Daniel was the one who interpreted these things. Now Daniel is the one who's dreaming and Daniel's the one who needs an interpreter. So it's a game changer. Not only are we moving from biographical to prophetic, we're moving from Daniel being the one who knew these things through God to God revealing these things to Daniel. So not only does Daniel have to be the one who gets an interpreter, but this is very personal to Daniel. Daniel wants you to know when he records this for us that this is very upfront, it's very personal to him. And I get that because of a phrase that's repeated several times in this chapter. If you write in your Bible, the phrase is, I kept looking. I kept looking. It's very personal, Daniel. Daniel says, I want you to know this was me. Look at verse two. Daniel said, I was looking. You drop down to verse six. I kept looking. You drop down to verse seven. I kept looking. To verse nine, I kept looking. You go all the way to verse 11, I kept looking. Verse 13, I kept looking. Verse 21, I kept looking. Over and over and over again in this chapter, Daniel says, man, I was in the presence of God. I was given this vision. I kept looking at it. It was a nightmare that would not go away. Very personal to Daniel. Over and over, I kept looking, I kept seeing. I kept looking, I kept seeing. I kept looking, I kept seeing. And so Daniel's the one who dreams, somebody else has to interpret it, it's very personal. Then the other thing we note here, that it's out of order. I mean, this chapter is out of order chronologically. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we saw that the Babylonian Empire is the first one. They defeat the, uh, they, they take the Jews into exile. Nebuchadnezzar is the first king. The next king we study is Belshazzar. The end of chapter five, it, it says that Belshazzar died and Darius, the king of the Medes and Persians, took over. And last week we saw Daniel and the lions did, and that came about with Darius, the king of the Medes and Persians. Belshazzar dead. But then you come to chapter seven, verse one, and Daniel says, in the first year, Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Well, what's happening in the book of Daniel, up until now, it's been chronological. It's been a biographical study of Daniel's life. 
But now Daniel's gone back and he's saying, by the way, when Belshazzar was king, this is what happened to me. And we're going to see that in the next few chapters. He's gone back and he's inserting, if you will, what took place in earlier years. And so he's saying, when Belshazzar was alive in the first year of his reign, I had this dream and I, I wrote it down and here's the summary of it. And we just read about this dream. We saw that the first animal was a winged lion. The wings are plucked. And it's no coincidence that, this, that the lion was the symbol of the nation or the kingdom of Babylon. And by the way, these animals represent different kingdoms. How do I know that? Look at verse 17. By the way, the greatest commentary on the Bible is the Bible. I mean, the greatest way to understand scriptures is what the scripture teaches from the scriptures. And so it unfolds, it tells us what many of these things are. Look at verse 17. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so we recognize that these four beasts each represent a kingdom. Now, if you were with us when we studied Daniel chapter 2, we saw the same thing. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. In that dream, he saw this large statue of a man. And it specifically said when Daniel interpreted that the head was Babylon. So if you look on the screen in front of you, uh, you see the large man and you see the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, the head of uh, gold and the, the, uh, the statue goes down from there. And then you see the four different animals that uh, Daniel dreams about in Daniel chapter seven. You see the winged lion. So Babylon's symbol of the kingdom itself was a lion. It had wings, that means it was swift, and Babylon was a swift army, but those wings are plucked, which means you're defeated, you lose, and that's what happened to Babylon. Babylon was defeated by the Medes and the Persians, and the idea of walking like a man, we saw Nebuchadnezzar become an animal, eventually walk like a man. Then you go to verse five, and it talks about this bear. A bear is slower, a bear is strong, a bear is plotting. Uh, this bear, it's raised up on one side. So what does that mean? Well, if you remember, it's the kingdom of the Medes and Persians. One side was stronger than the other. If you look at history, the Persian side of the Medo-Persian empire was much stronger. It had three ribs in his mouth. What does that mean? Well, it's devouring nations. This is not about Miller's barbecue, okay? It's, it's about devouring nations. And if you study the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire stretched all the way from India to the east, all the way west to Egypt. India to Egypt. It became a vast empire in its day. It devoured many nations. That's the picture of the bear devouring nations. And then the next one is a leopard, swift, cunning, cruel to its prey. Alexander and the Greeks were the empire that conquered the Medes and the Persians. And this described Alexander. It had four wings, warp speed, if you will. That's true of the Greeks. It had four heads. Here's what's interesting. If you study Greek history, Alexander the Great, who conquered the world, after he died, what happened to the Greek empire? Well, the Greek empire divided among his heirs. Guess how many it split into? Four. Four different kingdoms and four different The word of God was fulfilled. Daniel's given a prophecy. We look back, we see the fulfillment of that prophecy. One of the reasons we know we hold in our hands the inspired and errant word of God. You saw the predictions I gave you about industry and about uh, music business and other things. Uh, imagine those prophecies being made thousands of years ahead of time yet coming to fruition. That's what you see in Daniel chapter 7. You see the greatness of our God, you see the veracity of his word, and you can bow down and worship him. And so then we come to this fourth kingdom. The fourth kingdom described in verses seven and eight. It's quite interesting. This fourth kingdom is dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. Well, the kingdom that conquered the, the, uh, the Greeks was the Roman kingdom. 
And the Roman kingdom comes to power with all of its Caesars, and it does this very thing. It's just terrifying, exceedingly strong. It devoured and crushed and trampled the remainder. But then the emphasis here is upon this little horn. The emphasis in Daniel chapter 7 from here on out is not on the four different kingdoms, but it's one particular aspect of the prophecy. I mean, when you look at it, look at, look at uh, verse 8. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up from among them. And the three horns of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. So there's a little horn pulling out these roots and pulling out these others. And, and, and it said, it had eyes like the eyes of a man. So you've got a horn with the eyes of a man who's uttering great and boastful things. And so whoever or whatever this little horn is, is yapping, 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 talking about how great he is. Talking about how great he is. But here's what's interesting. Whoever this little horn is, not going to be around too long, jump to verse 11. I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words that this horn was speaking. Yapping, 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 yapping. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away from them. So let's back up now. Let's look at what we're talking about. Daniel has this dream. In this dream, he sees these four beasts there in front of you on the screen, the lion, the bear, the leopard, and this unrecognizable beast, whatever it is. They're each going to be defeated. And as they're defeated uh, on this last beast, there's going to be this little horn who's going to be braggadocious in the presence of What do you mean you're in the presence of God? Well, there's an abrupt change. You see, in the first eight verses, the focus is upon earth and things happening on earth. Focus upon these four earthly kingdoms, where they might be. But then you come to verse nine and there's an abrupt change. I mean, it's really abrupt when you look at it. I mean, we're describing all these animals, all these beasts and things are gonna happen. And look at verse nine with Daniel says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took a seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Who's the Ancient of Days? Then it says thousands upon thousands were tending to him. Does that sound familiar? Take a look at Revelation 3 and 4 and 5. There were myriad upon myriad standing, myriad upon myriad standing before him. This is a description, the ancient of days as our heavenly father. The scene is an interesting scene. If you write in your Bibles, the court sat. The court sat. We, we have several judges that attend TBC. This is a courtroom scene. It's a courtroom scene. It's a scene in a courtroom. God the Father comes in. Obviously, everyone is standing. And when he sits... He opens the books. It says the books were open. The judge has entered the building. The judge takes a seat. And what happens? Look at verse 11. I kept looking. Because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking, I kept looking until this beast was slain. You see, this yapping little horn, whatever it is, or whoever it is, is standing in the presence of God. You imagine the, the, the audacity of that, yapping about how superior he is, who he is. Actually, what he's yapping about, I'm going to show you in a second. He's blaspheming God, he's blaspheming the temple of God, and he's blaspheming the saints of God, that's you and me. And you know what God does? Look up here, this is what God does. Boom, you're done. That's what God does. He just goes, boom, you're done. 
Come here, little horn. Let me teach you a lesson. That's what God does. I mean, God just takes in verse 11 and destroys this little horn. He's mouthing off to God, but he's about to be humbled. You ever been humbled before? I mean, he's pridefully speaking, the guy's about to be humbled. The guy writes, I was driving when I saw the flash of the camera light. This guy was humbled. He said, I figured my picture was being taken for exceeding the speed limit, even though I looked at my speedometer and I wasn't going over the speed limit. I, just to be sure, I went around the block and passed the same spot. I drove even more slowly, and sure enough, the camera flashed. I, I began to think that this was quite funny, so I drove even slower a third time. The camera flashed again. I tried a fourth and fifth time. I was going a snail's pace when I rolled past the camera, and sure enough, it flashed. I knew I wasn't going more than the speed limit. I was going way under the speed limit. Two weeks later, I got five tickets in the mail for driving without a seatbelt. <laughs> Pride comes before the fall. <laughs> I mean, this little horn is about to be humbled. God's going to say, boom, I'm done with you. We're finished. You're dead. In fact, you're going to be cast into a lake of fire. You're going to be burned up. My friend, this is a scene of judgment. The judgment of God is not a topic many preach about today, not many of us want to think about, and most of us want to walk out of church feeling good about ourselves. But here's the reality. The reality is God is a judge. This is a scene of judgment. And one day, each of us will stand before the judge. David Platt says this. He writes and says... Uh, the gospel reveals eternal realities about God that we sometimes would, not, would rather not face. We prefer to sit back and enjoy our cliches and picture God as a father who might help us all while ignoring God as a judge who might damn us. See, we think and talk about the love of God, but when do we talk about the wrath of God and the judgment of God? Platt concludes this way, maybe this is why we fill our lives with the constant drivel of entertainment in our culture in the church. We're afraid if we stop and really look at God and his word, we might discover that he evokes greater awe, demands greater and deeper worship than we're ready to give him. We want to think about the wrath and judgment of God. But here's the good news. A.W. Tozer was the founder of the Christianary Mission Alliance denomination. He was a great author, somewhat of a, a mystic, if you will. And he makes a statement, we must take refuge from God in God. It's a great statement. We take refuge from God in the judgment of God in God that's Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let me put it this way. If you know Christ as Savior, you don't have to fear him as judge. That's the great news. The great news of the gospel is not only do you have forgiveness, but you don't have to fear him as judge. Because when you stand before him, he's going to say, forgiven, 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 forgiven. If you know Christ as Savior, you don't have to fear him as judge. But if you don't know Christ as Savior, I wouldn't get in my car and drive out of this parking lot and risk an eternity separated from the living God. I wouldn't do that. So I ask you this morning, my friend, do you know the Savior? Not do you know about him, but have you personally trusted Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins so that you'll spend eternity in his presence. 
And if you do, the good news is this. If you know Christ as Savior, you don't have to fear him as your judge. Because he looks at you and says, forgiven, enter into my kingdom. Forgiven, enter my kingdom. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my rest. So we look at this and we see, man, this little horn, who is it? Well, Revelation 13 gives us a clue. There's a parallel from Daniel chapter 7. It says this, I saw bees rising out of the sea, sound familiar, rising out of the sea, with ten horns, sound familiar, seven heads, ten diadems, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. In Daniel 7, we've got this beast uttering all these boastful words. And Revelation 13 goes on and says, it was allowed to exercise authority for how long? For 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years. That number is significant. Time of tribulation is seven years. Three and a half years is the midpoint of the time of great tribulation. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against number one, God. Number two, about against the dwelling place. Number three, against those who dwell in heaven. And so this, this person referred to in Revelation 13 is called the Antichrist. He's the one who stands against God. the dwelling place of God, and the people of God. And so when you look at Revelation 13 in light of Daniel chapter 7, you recognize that one day this Antichrist, God's going to say, here you go, little horn, boom, you're gone. But before that, he's going to wreak havoc upon the earth. Before that, he's going to be uttering these blasphemous words against God, against his people, and against his throne. But the little horn in Daniel 7 is established for us in Revelation 13 as the Antichrist, the one who stands against God and the one who stands against God's people. Now, to me, the most exciting part of the passage, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. So you get the, you've, you've got the scene with me? You've got a picture of the scene in your mind? The Ancient of Days is a heavenly father. Into his presence comes one who is called the Son of Man. And when the Son of Man comes to the Father, he gives to him, he coronates him, if you will, and he says, here's your kingdom. It's a kingdom that will not be destroyed. So we know who the Ancient of Days is. We've just established that. The question is, who is the Son of Man? Well, every Hebrew scholar would see Daniel chapter 7 as prophetic regarding the coming Messiah. Whoever the Messiah would be would be the Son of Man. He's the one who will receive the kingdom. It's the only everlasting kingdom that there is. It's the kingdom of God. So fast forward from Daniel chapter 7 to the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, you could look at Matthew, you could look at Mark, you could look at John. Jesus is on trial. But Jesus remains silent. And Caiaphas the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see whom? The Son of Man. Do you see what he's saying there? Jesus is saying, I am the son of man from Daniel chapter seven. In Daniel chapter seven, the ancient of days, God the father is on his throne. The son of man, whoever that will be, will come in and receive his kingdom forever. 
And here in in Matthew chapter 28, 26, what's happening is Jesus is on trial, and on trial, he turns to Caiaphas and says, uh, you'll see the Son of Man. Jesus is identifying himself as the Son of Man who is the Messiah. Make no mistake about it. Make no mistake about it. The Jewish authorities understood the claim of Christ. See, they knew the Son of Man terminology from Daniel 7. In fact, they knew it was a claim that Jesus was making to be Messiah here. Say, Gary, how do you know that? Because if you keep reading in that particular gospel account in Matthew 26, it says Caiaphas the high priest tore his robes and said, he, referring to Christ, has uttered blasphemy. What's the blasphemy he uttered? I'm the son of man. Claiming to be the Messiah. And so the picture in Daniel chapter 7 Daniel is given a glimpse in his dream, in his vision. He's given a glimpse of the day that Christ is incarnated by God the Father. The Son of Man stands before the Ancient of Days. And he says, my son, his son with the nail-scored hands, his sail, his son where the spear has been driven into his side, his son stands before him and he says, here's the crown and here's the kingdom. It's to your glory. If we could see that scene. To me, this is one of those magnificent scenes in all the scripture. Here's Daniel getting a foretaste, seeing what's going to happen. And I'm privileged to do a lot of weddings over the years. And there's a magical moment in every wedding. All the dudes are standing up on this side. All the gals are over here and their dudes are over here and they're decked out and nobody's paying attention to them and You've got all these beautiful women over here wearing that dress they're only going to wear one time, paid a lot of money for it. (laughs) There's this dude standing right here, and uh, for a moment the eyes are on him. I'm standing right here. We move these steps to the center, and I'm standing on these steps. And a lot of times Pam will be over here, and she hits the bridal march. Boom. Every eye. Nobody's looking at this dude. Nobody. I mean, nobody's looking at him. Nobody's looking at me and waving at me. Nobody's paying attention to these girls decked out in this dress they paid all this money for and never going to wear again. Nobody's looking at all these guys in tuxedos. When that bridal march comes, those doors open, and when those doors open, the bride appears in all of her glory. And you watch everybody turn when she hits that center aisle, and every eye is on that woman. I'll never forget it. September 4th, 1976, the BS Union, BSU Union on the LSU campus. Be 40 years this September. I'm the dude standing down here. Till the bridal march, I'm kind of hee-hawing with my friends around. My folks are there. My folks are there. Those folks are over here. And all of a sudden, that bridal march comes. Those back doors swing open. And there's my bride. Now, don't forget, my daughter got married. Got married in this building. Uh, I had the privilege to escort her in. So there's another pastor standing down here, my son-in-law's pastor from College Station. We hit the back door. We hit that center aisle. Nobody wants to high-five me coming down the aisle. <laughs> Every eye is fixed on my beautiful daughter. Every eye is fixed on her. Nobody's worried about who the pastor is, about who, who these guys are. They ain't worried about this guy down here, the gorilla in the penguin suit. Nobody's concerned about him. Every eye is on the bride. Never forget, my son got married. 
I had the privilege to do their wedding. I'm standing down here. We're at some wedding venue outside of Georgetown, west of Georgetown. I'm standing down here, and, uh, you know, everybody's lined up, and we're doing our thing. And then all of a sudden, here comes Michelle when the bridal march starts. Nobody's worried about who the pastor is. Nobody's worried about who the groom is. Every eye is fixed on the bride. Here's the father with the son saying, hey, here it is. Here's your crown. Here's your kingdom. You've paid the price. It's yours forever. And Daniel got to see that. It's a marvelous thing to see a bride. It's an imaginable, unimaginable thing to see the father of eternity handing the kingdom to a son. And Daniel had a front row view. I can imagine he just wanted to throw his hands up and praise God and give glory to God, honor God. And that should be the the response that's elicited from us as well. The king has come into his kingdom. The one who gave his life now has his kingdom. When Jesus used the phrase son of man, he's assigning himself to be the Messiah. He's proclaiming himself as the Messiah. Son of man talks about his humanity. He was 100% God, 100% man. And the Son of Man has given his kingdom and it's an aha moment that you'll never forget. And Daniel watches it and he sees it. You know, my friends, we can argue the scheme of end times events and we can debate if we're in end times right now. But don't miss the focus. When we study this chapter and the rest of Daniel, and we study the book of Revelation, the focus is on our triumphal king. That's who it's about. And I enjoy talking about end time schemes, and I enjoy talking about world events and wondering if we're in end times, but the reality of it is our focus needs to be upon the king and no one else. See, this, this whole thing is explained and it's explained in general detail in verses 15 through 17, 15 through 18, and then in specific detail after that. Daniel keeps looking, verse 21, war is waging, saints are being overpowered, the ancient days comes, judgment is past, but the whole thing is about the one who's going to reign. Look at verse 27. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the, to, to the people of the highest one. In 19, I'm sorry, in 2004 at the Olympics, a guy named Mark Emmons was representing America. He had won uh, the two previous events, everything to lead up to his final shoot. He was shooting what's called a uh, three-stance position in the Olympics. You, you uh, kneel, you, uh, lay down, you lie, you kneel, and you stand. Emmons was one of the greatest shooters in American history came to the very final round of the Olympics. He's number one in the world. He's leading the final round of the Olympics. All he has to do is hit his target. He, he doesn't even have a bullseye. He just has to hit the target. If you know anything about Olympic shooters, they never miss the target. They may miss the bullseye. They never miss the target. Never. Emin gets down. His last position is lying down. And somehow he gets distracted and loses his focus. He hit the target. In fact, he hit the bullseye of the target. The problem is he hit the target in the lane next to his, not his target. All those years of preparation, all those years of training, all those years of wanting to be the gold medal Olympic champion, distracted just for a second, getting his focus off just for a minute, 
And you can see the look of anguish on his face when he found out what happened. And you can see him being consoled by his wife, recognizing he lost the medal. The reason he lost is because his focus was distracted just for a minute. In 1 John, it says, Little children, abide in him so that when he appears, you will not shrink away in shame at his coming. John's saying, don't lose your focus. Well, you can talk about end time schemes and you can talk about uh, the world events of today, but the focus is upon Jesus. In this scene, the father says, the son enters the presence of the ancient of days and only the king of kings can do that. And he comes to the father and the father says, here's your crown, here's your glory, here's your kingdom. And Jesus is incarnated. So, prophecy. Vision is explained. We see that uh, this little horn is going to be defeated and that God's kingdom will reign and he's going to rule forever. The king always keeps his word. He always keeps his word. He's done it in the past. He's doing it right now. He'll keep it in the future. And make no mistake about it, the culmination of all of prophecy The culmination of all the prophecy is the return of Jesus. It's a culmination. He's coming back. Just as he said these kingdoms will come and go and they've come and gone, and just as he said these things are going to happen and they happen, he says he's coming again. My friends, he's going to come back. And when he comes back, there'll be two responses. For some, it's a warning. Get prepared. It's a warning. You don't know Christ to save you, but get prepared. He'll come back any time. For others of us, it's not a warning, but it's a comfort. It's a comfort that he's coming back to, to take us from this place and be in his presence forever. But it's not an escape clause. It's, it's a hope. It's a hope to be with him forever. It's a great hope that in spite of the chaos around us, we need to be ready because he'd come at any time. Hope, comfort, and warning. That's what prophecy is about. So when you go to seminary, I can barely remember those days. I've been out for 35 years. But what they teach is when you're preaching a sermon, if you forget where you're headed next, the thing to do is go back and repeat the previous point, and maybe it'll come to you where you're supposed to go. So if you hear me repeating points, it's because I have no idea where I'm headed. (laughs) So there's a young guy who's only been out of seminary for several months, preaching in his first church, and he's staying in the pulpit. He's preaching about the return of Christ, and he slams the pulpit and says, Behold, I come quickly. And for the life of him, he couldn't remember where he's gone next. So he remembered in seminary, he said, go back and repeat your point. Maybe remember where he headed. So he slams his fist in the pulpit again and said, behold, I come quickly. Still couldn't remember where he's gone next. So he leaned over in the pulpit, slapped it, and said, behold, I come quickly. And he tumbled right in the front row on an older lady sitting right there. He was so apologetic. He said, ma'am, I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. She said, son, you have to be sorry. You warned me three times you were coming. (laughs) Jesus says, behold, I come quickly. Be warned and be comforted. Thank you, Father. Thank you for that scene in heaven that you give us a glimpse of through Daniel. The Son of Man stands before the Ancient of Days. He's given the kingdom. That moment, that moment when all eyes are fixed upon him, 
That moment when myriad upon myriad stand in your presence. We see you and all your glory. He's coming back one day. Are you ready? Are you ready by knowing Christ as Savior? You're ready by walking with the Savior. Little children abide in him so that when he appears, you will not shrink away in shame at his coming. Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Dismissed.